Wouldn't it be great to live a life of purpose? To wake up every morning knowing what you are on earth for and being excited to do it. Some people experience this, but many don't. They are adrift. My name is Bradley Wright. I'm a sociologist who studies purpose and meaning. I'm also a husband, a father, a Christian who pursues purpose throughout my life. Welcome to the School of Purpose podcast. Together, we will explore how purpose works and what we can do to have more of it in our lives. You don't have to be lost. You can move forward every day with a greater sense of purpose and meaning. Enjoy listening. Welcome to Manisha Desai. Uh, she's a professor of sociology and Asian and Asian American studies here at the University of Connecticut. Uh, she's also a department head. In her research, she studies gender, globalization, human rights, and contemporary Indian society. So welcome to the show, Manisha. Thanks, Brad. So what I'm looking forward to doing is having a conversation with you about your research of activists in, in India and the role that purpose plays in their lives. An individual sense of purpose really wasn't the focus of your research, but it seems like it came up a lot, as, as we've talked about before. So to get us going, could you just tell us a little bit about your research and what you've been doing? Sure. So this most current research project uh, was looking at 40 years of uh, feminist activism in uh, Mumbai and the state around there, Maharashtra. And what I was really interested in is looking at how feminism has changed from the 70s to now, particularly as other social movements have emerged, which also address issues of gender and sexuality. So feminists are not the only one looking at gender. You have LGBTQ movements in India because we've had a lot of religious strife. There are Muslim feminists who have emerged and because we have a caste system uh, where Dalits were kind of the outcast, they've sort of been critiquing. And so as a result, you have lots of different movements who are looking at gender and not just kind of the dominant women's movement. And so it was also looking at the relationship among these movements uh, and also, you know, individual feminists. So that's kind of, you know, my general project to see how the early women's movements have changed both in their understanding, but also in their practices uh, of how they're approaching gender justice and their relationship with other movements that are also including gender justice within their social justice movement. So that's, you know, the project. Well, I know your research has been very well received. It's generated quite multiple books and lots of articles. What I like about it is how wide ranging it is. You're looking across time, you're looking across groups, uh, within ethnic groups, you're looking across uh, different classes. So there's a lot going on. Tell us a little bit about the activists that you actually interviewed. What what did they do? Who were they? So again, because it's, uh, you know, Across time, I have activists who are, you know, 18 and 19 and activists who are now 70. So I have a whole range of uh, activists. The earlier activists were predominantly what we would we call Savarna. Savarna means upper caste. So it would be the equivalent of, you know, white feminists here. And so these were primarily urban, educated, middle class and actually English educated. So in India, we do have the colonial heritage, which means that and that includes people like me, um, you know, part of that group who are upper caste, English educated and urban. Uh, and so a lot of the activists came from that background. But as you go along, you see lots of different groups of women coming into it. So you have women from other castes, women from other religion, other sexualities and other region, because India also, like I 
you know, the U.S., the four major metro areas, that's Bombay, Delhi, Calcutta, and Madras, which is now Chennai, are the big dominant cities. And a lot of movements tend to kind of emerge from there and then spread out. Uh, there were also a lot of rural movements of rural women. So unlike here, because India is still not a predominantly urban country, even though it's becoming more so, there were lots of rural women's movements too. But the activists there were still the urban activists, you know, the same demographic that I described, upper caste, educated, but they would go to the rural areas and live there and kind of commit their life to, you know, working for social change. Uh, yeah, so the activists too have changed in terms of demographics of who they are over the years. Interesting. So usually when people talk to Manisha about her research, the direction of the conversation goes into social movements and society and justice. We're going to take it in a little different direction. We're going to talk about what goes on with inside the activists. Right. Now, the connection between purpose and activism is, is very salient. It's, it's my impression that most people don't get into activism for the money or That's the fame right. or because they just feel like they're supposed to because their parents want them to either go to med school or be an activist or something. Yeah. yeah. Did this come up in your interviews with them and your research with them about their personal motivations and how that might tie into purpose? Absolutely. In fact, you know, all of the early work really starts out, most of my interviews are more kind of oral history. So they start out with, tell me about yourself. How did you become active? Why did you become active? So I do have, you know, a whole lot of uh, data around that. So because I focus more on movements and strategies, that's data that I haven't really done much with. But, you know, and that's why when you said you were thinking about purposing, oh, I should kind of, you know, re-examine my data to look. And almost all of them invariably have two ways in which they talk about how they come to activism. One is kind of a family history, but a family history which says that you need to do something beyond yourself, that your life, to have meaning or purpose, it cannot just be about yourself, you know, and your well-being and going to school and all of that. So that was almost universally. Uh, and when I think about it, you know, for the predominantly Hindu families, even those of us who grew up secular, but as I said, you know, you, I always sort of say I'm a Hindu atheist and that, you know, I don't necessarily believe in, you know, a higher power, but a lot of my values, worldview are shaped by a lot of what is part of, you know, Hindu religious philosophical traditions, including the fact that I'm a lifelong vegetarian. I've never eaten meat ever because that's how I grew up. That was part of, you know, my particular family and particular caste background. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, I'm a practicing one, if one could say that. Uh, and so I think a lot of the activists talk about that they all grew up, you know, being told that they couldn't just focus on themselves, that they have to be this other focus. What are you going to give back? What are you going to do for others? And in Hinduism, we have this four-stage uh, kind of career path. So, you know, you start out as a student, then you are a householder, meaning, you know, you marry, have a family, do things. Uh, then you have this third stage where you give back to society. And then the fourth stage, which is very interesting, is you kind of renounce all of that and go towards self-fulfillment. That is kind of reaching nirvana. So you start out with education, being in the world, giving back. And then the last is ultimately going back towards like a spiritual enlightenment is what you'd come. And so for all of the activists, that kind of did shape, you know, the fact that you had to do something beyond, you had to kind of give back. And so to me, that's like what 
you know, what is your life's purpose? But the second thing that almost all of them also said is that given that, you know, most of our parents were active in the nationalist struggle for independence against British colonial, that there was also that motivation, that the families all were involved either in the movement or involved in some kind of social justice because, you know, it was such a predominantly poor country. So there was the sense that if you live in the country in which and you see social injustice, that you have to do something about it. But to me, both of those are connected, even though, you know, the fact that they came from backgrounds in which families had a history of, you know, some kind of movement relationship. It was never about movements per se. It was always in terms of social justice, about dignity of other people and how you needed to, you know, that that was kind of your social responsibility. So the term that's used very often in a religious context is dharma, that it is your dharma, which literally means it's your responsibility to kind of, you know, when you see injustice, you have to do something about it. And so even though sometimes they would frame it, that they came from a family which had not always, you know, in political movements, but some kind of ways in which they were connected to this concept of dharma, of, you know, kind of giving back your, what is your responsibility as a human being? That's really interesting. There's a couple of themes I want to pick up on out of that. And uh, by the way, for those of you who aren't card-carrying sociologists, um, (laughs) ethnographic researchers write down a lot of things that they see and they hear, and they end up with tens, hundreds of thousands of words and descriptions. They only use some of it for any given research project. So when Manisha talks about having used some of her data for books, that means there's a whole pile of description, data, ideas that she has in mind. And that's what I'm, I'm just thrilled to be able to get into with this podcast. One thing that strikes me is the intergenerational aspect of what you're talking about. When I talk to young people here about purpose, the story often goes something like this. My parents want me to do what I'm supposed to do and be conventional, law school, med school, business. But what I really want to do is be an artist, be a physical therapist, work in the forest or something like that. Yeah. And so there's almost a, a tension or a conflict between what my parents want and what I want. And what I like about what you're saying is how these activists got into activism because of the example they saw of their parents. So their parents had an expectation of do something yeah. that matters. Right. Did, did you find any exceptions to that? Or was that pretty much the rule that... I would say, you know, I mean, as I think back, and this is like thinking back of, you know, 30 years of my research, because my dissertation was on the emergence of the women's movement. And that was just starting out in the late 70s. And so, you know, I interviewed most of these activists like a decade later in the mid 80s, late 80s. Uh, And that was clearly, you know, very much the case. Is that, you know, so to answer your question, I would say that probably there are very few exceptions. And the exceptions I'm going to talk about are with the younger generation. So here the generational issue in India is different, which is that a lot of the younger generation activists that I've been interviewing more recently, as opposed to the you know, older demographic that I mentioned, they've come to activism actually through education. So some of them you know, went to social work school. Some of them took their first women's studies course. You know, some of them, so a lot of them became activists through higher education. I was actually just talking to ASHA, which is a group on uh, campus at UConn, which is supporting education in India. So they're raising funds and do things to support 
you know, and so these are primarily then Indian and South Asian kids at UConn's campus who are raising funds to support education for kids in India who, you know, can't afford it. And that there is, you know, the emergence of NGOs and they have provided a means, a career path, which is different than the others. So the younger generation don't necessarily come with the same kind of purpose that the older generation had in terms of intergeneration. Not that it's disappeared, but now you're seeing a lot of different activists come because of a women's studies course or because there are so many more NGOs. So it's particularly social work and women's studies have been the two, you know, partly given my own focus, it's not surprising that that would be the case. So that's kind of a new avenue for younger activists. So interesting. So there's almost two parts to that. One, the socialization or the motivation from education, from courses, but then also two, the opportunity to do it. Exactly. Yep. Interesting. That's a common theme when people talk about purpose is there's what I want to do and then there's what I think I can do. Yeah. And uh, one of the exercises that when I work with people on this that we, we go over is, well, what would you do if you knew you would succeed? So in other words, let's take the can I do it or are there opportunities off the table and just focus on what you want to do. Let's talk a little bit about doing something beyond oneself. Mm-hmm. So this seems to be a common theme when people talk about their own purpose, uh, even here in the States, is that it's something bigger than them. So I haven't heard many people say, my purpose in life is to watch as many Netflix shows as possible or to consume as many Doritos as possible. Even though those might be pleasurable, uh, they don't seem to have a a big impact beyond oneself. Uh, What are some of the language or, or how do the activists experience this desire to do something beyond oneself? Is it, is it an emotional pull? Is it sort of like a, a cognitive thing where they say, well, this just makes sense? Or how do they experience it? Uh, you know, and I'm trying to think about the words that they use. And I think it is emotional uh, because in a lot of the kind of, you know, the two sort of trajectories of activists saying, you know, both from, you know, the religious aspect and then, you know, having had family, you know, work in movements for national independence and others, so, you know, kind of the political and the religious, let's call it for, you know, lack of better word, both are extremely emotive and embodied experiences. So if you're doing it through the religious aspect, there are ways in which you are, you know, working with collective groups. It's about going, you know, undertaking journeys, you know, for a lack of better word, pilgrimages, you know, to certain places to work with people. And so it is very much an emotional pull. And now what I see, you know, in the younger generation, how that gets kind of redefined is self-care and social care. Oh, interesting. uh, And so I'm kind of writing a piece on that. I've just kind of formulated the idea I'm doing really more reading right now than writing. Uh, But it's how does one think of self-care as social care, that you cannot, you know, have your own. So activists always talk about burnout. You know, you work so hard and then, you know, you're burned out and you really need to do something. And that kind of self-care part of activism and how that re-energizes them for a purpose is something I see much more with younger activists and with older activists now. So it's temporal. So, but nonetheless, they're talking about self-care and social care together. That you can't do one without the other. And it's very much kind of an embodied experience. So for example, in India, you know, everyone more or less does yoga of some kind, right? 
So taking time to go on a retreat. And so an interesting, you know, thing that I discovered this last time around was this, you know, she's now a friend because I've been interviewing her for 30 years. She gave up Delhi, went to a rural area, opened almost like an ashram. An ashram is, you know, a traditional Indian educational system, essentially. An ashram is like a school. Very often it would be away in a forest. It would be with a guru and the students would all be residential. But you lived with the guru, which means you had to, you know, get wood, get firewood, get everything. So it was kind of a whole experience. And so she's essentially built a rural ashram. And activists can now go there to have retreats or to kind of rejuvenate themselves, you know, after being there, protesting, being on the streets, you know, all. And so that kind of way in which self-care with social care is kind of re-emerging is, I would say, not just an emotional, but kind of like a full-bodied experience. And we need to take care of our bodies, not just, you know, our emotions and feelings. I found that also with another recent group that in this kind of, you know, activists, so they bring together activists from all over South Asia. And normally, you know, the countries in South Asia have always had a lot of contentious political ties, which means Pakistanis still can go to India very easily. So they would meet in a third country like Nepal. So Indian activists, Pakistanis, Sri Lankans, and Bangladeshis would meet in Nepal. And a very big part of activism now is also about care. And so they have yoga sessions and they have you know, mindfulness training. And, and so, you know, that kind of bringing in self-care with social care to kind of combine it for a more purposeful life is bringing in the religious and the political, combining those two in very interesting ways. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, but. Absolutely. In fact, it, it ties into an observation that I've been making when I talk to people about purpose, it seems that what they say usually can fall into about four different buckets, and you just describe them. The social, where you're acting on the world. The personal, where it's not just you want relief, but, but you want to become somebody. So what you describe, you know, they're not just going to lay on the couch for a weekend and recover. It's, you know, mindfulness and yoga are, there's a sense of, uh, of, de of destination, of growth, of transformation. Yeah. Um, the other two are... Uh, spiritual, and then also yeah. relational, which, you know, is, is a subtext of what you're saying in terms of activists from different groups coming together. And so all of those domains coming together in purpose sounds like a much richer treatment of purpose rather than what do I do with my job or, you know, what, what, what's, my, uh, what's my nine to five, right. even if it is something that's like activism. Yeah. I got so excited about the idea, I forgot about the next question. <laughs> Maybe I'll just and ask you this question uh, because that's something I'm working on and I, I'm just reading really right now mm -hmm. and sort of thinking through. And I actually just sent this title to uh, my sons who are, you know, both always interested in what I read and write about. So they always want to know. And it was something like uh, grace and gratitude and self-care and rage and resistance and social care for social justice. And where I'm going with that is that in some ways, the kind of um, skills and attitudes and mindset that you need to develop, I think to take care of yourself, are sometimes at odds or contradictory to what you need to be a social justice activist. 
And I think that's kind of the tension I've been seeing in the different generations and how now they're trying to bring that together through this, what I've been describing through some of these retreats, which is that, you know, in your personal life, disappointments happen and you have to kind of accept them and, you know, be sort of grateful for the things that you do have, which is, as I was saying with my disappointment, you know, I could be disappointment and be poogie for a while or say, you know, I'm still in a pretty good situation. I have a sabbatical and, you know, okay, so I didn't get the admin leave. So I was going to get a whole year off, but I still have, you know, one semester off. And you can sort of think that and be grateful. And that's important, you know, for oneself being and not to get, you know, too upset. But on the other hand, as an activist, you do have to have a certain amount of rage as the injustices and not accept things as they are, right? Because you can't sort of accept all of these unjust, you know, institutions that we have created and that you have to consistently, uh, you know, fight. You can't kind of give up that and accept that. But in your personal life, for your own well-being, you do have to accept some and you do have to be grateful for, you know, all the things and the privileges that you do have. Uh, But that's not quite what you have to do as an activist. And I think that sort of leads to a certain amount of burnout, I think. And I think this kind of combining, I think, is a way forward to do both. Because I think we need to do both. I think as human beings in our personal lives, we do have to be grateful, you know, for what we have and accept with grace, you know, all of the randomness that comes just from being human beings. I mean, you know, that's kind of also my you know, both Hindu Buddhism, you know, life is suffering, you know, that's just a given. And how you respond to it is what makes the difference between those who are going to suffer versus those who will reach nirvana, right? Because that's why in the end, you go back to the forest is to kind of, kind of give up all of your worldly and social and other kinds of relationships to kind of focus on the self, not in a selfish way, but in a way to kind of, you know, prepare for enlightenment and whatever that might mean, you know, however you interpret it. So there's a lot in what you just said. And I, I really like how you're thinking about this in terms of when our purpose is externally focused, it may have qualitatively different characteristics than when it's internally focused. So I often use the word service uh, in, in a similar way as you would use social. Service really is about not accepting the way things are. Yep. So service isn't going to somebody who's struggling and saying, I observe that you're struggling Yeah. and leave it at that. Service is bringing making things better, bringing value, adding good things to people's lives. And that's change-focused. Whereas internal, sometimes it's change. Like uh, somebody going through uh, therapy or working through crises. But often, you're right, it's just flat-out acceptance. It's coming to terms with the way things are. That's that's a very very rich distinction. Now, when you started that, I actually thought you were going to go into a, a different direction and say, when we look at the social versus the self, purpose, to to use your distinction, there's an underlying motivation for both, and that is what matters most here. Because we can engage both the world and ourselves in a habitual way, in a thoughtless way, in a pro forma way that just accepts the way things always have been. But what we're talking about really is in each, even though they're very different arenas of life, saying what matters the most. And so in that sense, we have the same underlying question, the same underlying motivation, but it maybe gets worked out differently. So, yeah. so what, are, what, would, what would be your thoughts on that in terms of uh, conceptualizing uh, a little bit differently? 
As I said, this is just something I'm thinking about right now and reading. So I'm not quite sure where and how I'm going to go ahead with this. So this is just something that, you know, as I said, and now I'm kind of writing, you know, little chunks in between meetings. And so I'm hoping that when I have my sabbatical, I'll have a little more time to read and reflect and uh, take this further. That's wonderful. So you've studied people who have sought meaning in their life in part because of their parents' example. You're also a parent yourself. How have you translated that into your own life as a parent, uh, as a mother, to convey and to foster purpose? What, what are your thoughts on that, if you feel comfortable talking about it? Yeah, no, not at all. I, I'd be happy to. And I think um, mostly both of my boys have, I think, seen through example, because they've gone with me, you know, to talks on campus. They've gone with me to protests from the time they were, you know, they, before they could walk in there. Uh, and so they've always been engaged uh, in activism. They've always known that that is something that they have to do. Uh, and there's this very wonderful book that, you know, a Canadian friend had sent me. And I think, the, I'm not sure if the title is Mrs. R- uh, Rumphius, but the character in the book is Mrs. Rumphius. And she had, uh, you know, so she lived by the sea and in her family, you know, she was supposed to do three things in life. One was live by the sea. The second was travel the world. And the third would was to make the world beautiful in some way. And she's getting old. She has this little cottage by the sea. You know, she's traveled the world, but this third thing she hasn't done that she had to do. And as she's getting old, she doesn't know how she's going to make the world beautiful. And then one day she just gets an idea. Oh, I'm just going to plant a loop of seeds. So she goes around planting all these seeds. So next spring, you know, the valley around which she lives is beautiful. And she feels, okay, now, you know, I've, done the purpose, the three things I have to do in my life. And, you know, so from that book that I'd read, I'd always said about, okay, what are the three things that you have to do in your life? And one is to kind of just not live for yourself, but live for others and see how you can contribute to social justice. And that's something, you know, I've told them very specifically, but more than just telling them, they've seen how I've lived my life and what I do, and they've engaged in that. So both the boys have been with me, you know, to India to work, you know, in various uh, activist groups that I'm involved with. And they're both now, you know, very committed in very different ways. So my younger son, and I think I've mentioned this, is a high school teacher in the Bronx. And he works primarily with, you know, Black and Latino kids. He's a fluent Spanish speaker and has been doing a lot of organizing with parents uh, and in his union because they're also unionized. But beyond that, just, you know, they started, you know, Corona couriers, you know, taking food to uh, food and deliveries to people who couldn't, you know, and just lots of different kinds of activism. And my older son is similar. So they both sort of have this grounding that, yes, you know, you can do things for yourself that bring you pleasure and we all need to earn a livelihood. But beyond that, life cannot be just about our own pleasures and livelihoods that you have to do something, you know, beyond yourself. That's wonderful. It uh, makes me wish I, I had been more that way with my sons. <laughs> so there's two mechanisms that you, you identified as far as helping your kids move into purpose. And in your case, that is mainly activism. And one is direct instruction. And I think most parents get that. It's like, tell the kids what they're supposed to do. But the other is example. And I've actually seen that work 
most when it comes to uh, being an example of purpose, I've seen it work in the reverse, in the negative, where parents haven't pursued purpose, where they've just done what they were supposed to or what was expedient, and they always had this dream inside of them that they didn't pursue, and then it makes it a lot harder for the kids to pursue it because they don't they don't feel that they should. In fact, I know of multiple families where the parents would tell the children you need to do this because it's a, st- a stable job. It, it kind of doesn't matter what you really want to do. So the fact that your your kids see you pursuing what you feel is your purpose, I think is a very powerful thing for them. And also it models that it's not just about pleasure. The interplay between pleasure and purpose is interesting because it's easy to say it's one, not the other, as opposed to I both ends. Absolutely. I think having purpose brings you a lot of joy. Uh, and, you know, it, so it doesn't have to be that. And for me, interestingly, because I actually did start out to some extent following what my parents thought I should do, not because, you know, they had set example. My family was also very socially and politically active in the nationalist struggle, but also, you know, after that, just locally, you know, doing things for, you know, whatever people needed, like our house was where people would come if they needed advise if they needed money and because we had a home in Bombay and then one in our ancestral hometown people from our ancestral hometowns always came and stayed so sometimes there would be you know and one of my uh, father's brother was a doctor and a physician and he had a huge house we would have 10-15 people who would stay there for as long as they needed you know the treatment because in those days and still people can't afford where if you need to go to a big city you would just stay in a hotel And so they would stay in people's homes. So our home always had people living with us who needed some kind of care because they came from the village and didn't have connections in the big city. Uh, And so my kids have seen that as well when they travel to India. But my parents still actually started out, I don't know if I've told you this, my degree is in microbiology. And I started out doing the PhD, you know, in that. But it was during that time that the women's movement was becoming active. India had a period of emergency when democratic rule was suspended from 1975 to 77 when Indira Gandhi was the prime minister. And so there was a lot of social movements emerging in the late 70s, just when I was getting into high school. And so I became much more interested in that. And my father said, well, you can't just drop out of, you know, a PhD program. Uh, You still have to do something. And actually it was he who found a social work program. So why don't you do an MSW? That will get you, you know, what you want to do, but it'll also get you a degree, which I did. And then I have an MSW. And then from that, our school in the Bombay University had a relationship with Washington University in St. Louis. And so that's how then I ended up at WashU for a PhD in social work. But I didn't really like the kind of social work programs here. And then realized, okay, sociology was kind of more, you know, what the kind of training I had in India in social work was much more sociological in terms of looking at, you know, social structures and injustice. And, you know, it was also maybe because of the kind of faculty we had at that time who were all very radical and involved. And because at that time, uh, the mill industry in India, the textile mill industry was falling apart. And, you know, so the workers were organized. We were organizing them. There was a lot of uh, evictions of slums. So people were becoming homeless. So we were preventing evictions. And so, you know, so I had a much more sociological social work education in India. And then coming here, it was more about 
individual therapy and group work, which, you know, I think they're all relevant. It's not that I don't think they are, but it was not something that animated me. And so that's kind of my roundabout way. So even my parents who were themselves more socially active rather than just self-oriented did still want me to, you know, do something. Not that that would get me a job because I think they still thought that if I married and had an arranged marriage, you know, my husband would take care of me. Well, I feel that as a parent myself. So I have a, a son who's an entrepreneur. He's going out to start his own business. And part of me is like, that's fantastic. You're pursuing your, what you feel is your own purpose. But also part of me is like, oh, wait, you just chose to be unemployed. Stay with a good job that pays a lot so that everyone's, everything's safe. I mean, I, that's a real tension for parents. It is, yeah. Oh, and, and by the way, it's, it's fascinating that you have training in microbiology, in social work, and sociology. I love the multidisciplinary aspect of it. And I think that's part of what makes you such an effective researcher is that you can see the world through different lenses. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating how kids, what, what they take from their parents and what they don't. Yeah. So your kids don't, at least your son who's a teacher, doesn't study activism per se as you do, but yet it's a theme in his life. And he's also in education. My father was a professor as well. And I think that's how I got into the gig. But he was also very political. So we grew up routinely spending weekends going door to door, handing out bumper stickers, you know, uh, encouraging people to vote and and all that. Um, And for me, I've grown up and I've just... I describe myself as a conscientious objector with politics. I just have so much trouble with how both sides do it. I just don't want to deal with it. And yet there's part of me that wants to change the world just through a different mechanism. Yeah, and and that's what people always say in this country, right, that children kind of rebel against what their parents did and, you know, want to do something completely different. And so, you know, people would say, well, you know, when's that going to happen for your kids? And I said, I don't know, because I never told them they had to do that. I just told them that, in whatever way they did, they had to do. The bottom line was giving back. I don't care how, you know, you didn't have to follow my path. Uh, but that was important that you couldn't just live your life for your own, you know, pleasures and whatever else. Of course, they all, you know, enjoy themselves and they're happy people. And that message is often lost in our society um, and even in our education. So we say, do big things. And we say, be all that you can be, or whatever variation of that is. But we tend not to say, give back. It's about other people. And as we talked about earlier, it's not just about other people, but it is also about other people. One of the ways I like to think about it is, what would my life look like if all I cared about, if the only thing I tried to do was to give back? Now, I don't want to live that way, but I want to be able to answer that question. Yeah. Because then if I can answer the question, well, what would it look like if I live a life of solely for self-fulfillment? Well, then I start looking at what activities combine both. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Manisha. This has been an absolute joy. Um, Manisha works down the hallway from me, and yet we never <laughs> talk about interesting things like this. So we have to get on Zoom and, uh, and have it be a kind of a, a structured thing. But I, I really appreciate this. I appreciate the insight with which you come to things and sort of the the gentle wisdom with which you apply to deep and, and meaningful issues. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Rob. Likewise, and it's, I hope we can have more of these conversations with our colleagues as well. You know, once we return, that would kind of, you know, help a lot in terms of, you know, how we function with each other in the department. I would like that. 
So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Brad. Thank you for listening to the School of Purpose podcast. Please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about finding purpose, visit our website at schoolofpurpose.org. There are articles, training guides, book recommendations, and other useful information. I'll see you next time.